Church, uh, as we approach uh, the Easter Sunday, please be aware that this Friday evening, on Good Friday, we will have a 7 o'clock worship service here, a service of remembrance as we glory in the cross and prepare our hearts for Resurrection Sunday as, and, uh, as we observe the Lord's Supper. That will be on Friday night at 7 o'clock, and then next week, we will observe uh, Easter Sunday at our regular worship hours at 9, 10, 15, 11, 30. Uh, here on the main camp campus at our North Campus, they'll have their same worship schedule. And I would just ask that if you're worshiping here on the main campus, that if, if possible, you would come at the early hour because we will be uh, very full in the middle hour. So that is next week. Okay. We've been singing these glorious hymns. Listen to the scripture. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And they sang this song You are worthy to take the scroll. And to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign upon the earth. And I looked and heard the voice of many angels. Numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice. They sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Let's pray. Oh God, our Lord, our triune King, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may every Lord's Day be a dress rehearsal for this experience that awaits us in heaven. When a vast host of people too numerous to count who have been purchased by the reality of the Lamb, the shed blood of Christ, will cry out to you and say, worthy is the Lamb. And Lord, we we say that by faith in the finished work of Christ upon the cross today. And we pray that we would not only say it by faith, but experience in our inner being, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that as the Easter week is now here, that this would be a time of renewal and praise and glory. And Lord, for some people, maybe the first Easter, they really understand what it means to say, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. So God, have mercy upon us, O Lord. Let us know you and experience you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're in a bad situation. There's been a date set when you will have a one-on-one basketball game with a high school athlete who's 6'1", 6'2", a good athlete. 
and the first one to 21 wins the game. If you win, you're set for life. You're given several homes. You're given a bankroll. If you lose, you become a servant the rest of your days in an out back somewhere in the middle of nowhere. The stakes are very high. The problem is that two weeks before the contest, you go skiing in Utah, and this is what happens to you. You will recover, but you're in a full body cast. And so when the day of the contest comes, they wheel you onto the court to a, in front of a sneering 18-year-old senior in high school who's 6'1". He's a pretty good athlete. And you realize that you are undone. You cannot begin to compete. The game is over. But in the midst of your despair, something happens. A substitute steps forth. LeBron James, 6'9", 260 pounds, not one ounce of body fat, unarguably, in my opinion, the greatest basketball player I have ever seen. He walks on the court, and he wins 21 to nothing. He makes that high school senior look like a kindergartner who's just picked up his first basketball. Now, this is a little silly story. But what you could not do for yourself, a champion did for you. When you were in despair, broken, beaten, battered, no hope, someone else did for you what you could not do for yourself. There was a substitute who fulfilled what you could not do for yourself. I don't want us to ever overlook or forget or see the gospel of grace as just part of the landscape. I want it to be central. And so on this Palm Sunday, I want to go to a a passage that most New Testament scholars say is the heart of a biblical teaching. It's in the book of Romans. And it celebrates the glory of the cross. But in, in before we get there, Paul in the book of Romans is going to great lengths to say you are in a full body cast. You can't do it. You're in a full body cast. You can't scratch your nose. You can't pick up a basketball. You can't do it. He says in chapter 1, verse 18 and following, he says there's a, he says that the, the wrath of God is being revealed against all men who suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And he says that there's a sliding scale here to the scale of evil that that the apotheosis or the height of it is found in verse 32 of chapter 1 where he says that that, that not only only do they do such things that deserve death, but but they approve of those who practice them. They, They give people a standing ovation who do these things. He says, he doesn't say that all are equally evil. He says, but, but all are evil. And, and just as Paul is, is laying this out, and if you were hearing it read, and you were a first century rabbi, Pharisee, you would probably think in your heart, you know, this, this guy named Paul that many people criticize really is on the money. Go get him, Paul. Go get the Gentiles. And then he turns the guns on his countrymen. Then he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, you therefore have no excuse. You have no excuse. He says, and he says, he says, 
the last part of the verse, you do the very same things. Then he says, because of your stubbornness of heart, verse 5, your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. You're storing up wrath. He says, you, you do the very same things. You're on the scale of evil. And then he just thunders out. Chapter 3, verse 10, he says, There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one seeks God. They have all turned us away. They have turned together and become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. That is you and that is me. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That is you and that is me. Their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. They ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace. They do not know. And then, then there's no fear of God before their eyes. And you say, well, but, but what about the law? Well, we, we, we've tried. And, and then he says this statement that just slams the door shut. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, God's standards, we become aware of our sin. And, and despair. There's nothing but bleak despair that is part of the landscape. And then we come to this, this part of, of Romans, which is the center of the New Testament message. Bleak despair. And then Paul says, but now. Now. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, or what we can do, has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testify. But now. Listen, it's like this. I asked asked Dean if I could do this. If this were being set to music, you get to verse 21, and it's like, <laughs> get it? Now, I, want you, I did that. I want you to remember when you read Romans 3.21 in the future about the preacher who stood up here and beat cymbals, because that is what it's about. You get it? Bleak despair, and all of a sudden, boom, but now. But now a righteousness from God apart from what we can do, has been revealed to which the law and the prophets testify. In Luke 24, we had the best Bible study that's ever been, ever been, ever been carried out. It's on the road to Emmaus. Two disconsolate disciples of Jesus are on the road. Christ has been crucified. There is no hope. His body is in the ground. And, and so they're walking, uh, stumbling along, and the resurrected Christ joins them. And Christ says to them, why are you disconsolate? They say, haven't you heard? Everybody in Jerusalem knows what's happened. They put the teacher to death. 
He's been crucified. And the Bible says that, that, that Jesus just did a Bible study with him, a, a peripatetic Bible study as they walked along the way. And this is what Christ said. He said to them, how, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Wow. When I get to heaven, when the, after I've worshipped for a long time, I'm going to say, can I see the tape of the Bible study on the road to Emmaus? And I want to see that Bible study. To which the law and the prophets testify. What we could not do for ourselves, a substitute did for us. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Leviticus 16 talks about the once a year offering on the Day of Atonement. There was a Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, in the temple. And only once a year did the high priest go into it. And on this Day of Atonement, the whole nation fasted. And no one entered the whole temple except for the high priest. He put on special garments. He shed the blood of a bull to cover his own sins. And, went in and he sprinkled blood on the mercy seat inside the Holy of Holies seven times. He, he took a, two, two lambs, two goats, one was sacrificed. He goes inside. He sprinkled seven times to cover the sin of the people. He places his head on the other goat's head and he prays over, transferring the sins of the nation to the scapegoat. The scapegoat is sent into the wilderness, symbolically saying that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. They are no more. They're covered. Year by year by year, the nation of Israel would stand and say, will our sins be covered? And the answer is yes, because God has provided a lamb. And so when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter talks about the lamb of God who takes away our sins. Christ is saying here, I fulfilled the day of atonement. I am the lamb of Yom Kippur. To which the Old Testament prophets and the law testify. And in the book of Hebrews, a glorious book. It's glorious. Celebrating the once and for all reality of Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 19 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus through a new and living curtain open to us through his body. See that? The curtain open, the, the Holy of Holies forever open through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled. You hear that, the imagery of Leviticus 16? Our hearts are sprinkled. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. 
and having our bodies washed with pure water. After the high priest did that, he washed his body. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. And the writer is saying, behold, the Lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world, a new and living way through the curtain that is his body. There's no more holy of holies that separates the people from God. The curtain is open. Wow. And so as, as Paul writes this, he says, the law and the prophets, behold the greatness of Christ. And then he says this, verse 22, this righteousness from God comes through faith. In Jesus Christ, to all who believe, there is no difference. And again, if, if, you're, if you're a, a Jewish lad taught the ways of the law, your whole earth just quaked beneath your feet. There, there's no difference. Jew and Gentile, there's no difference. There's no room for nationalism or ethnic, ethnicity or, or social stratas before Christ because the ground is level at the cross. There is no difference. There's no difference. Conservative American who reads Horatio Alger stories and believes in American exceptionalism, there's no difference. The only thing that saves you is the work of Christ. It's not your ethnicity. It's not your nationalism. It's not your education or your social standing. There's no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And are justified freely by His grace through the redemption, the purchase that came by Christ Jesus. Well, how? How in the world? Verse 25. God presented Him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He is the covering. He experienced the wrath that should have fallen upon us. So I, I, I read this and I just go, God, God, please, please make this real in a growing way in my life. And I step back and I say, you know, justified freely, declared righteous freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, freely. And I say, you know what, just two points, just Quick two points. Number one is, there should be a sense of joy and peace in my life. If I, if I get this, if I realize that, therefore, brothers, let us draw near with confidence, having our hearts sprinkled because of the new and the living way through the curtain that is the body of Jesus, justified freely. I have peace, it says two chapters later in Romans 5, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, which we now stand freely. There's a quote in the bulletin from a book I've been reading, and I read this paragraph, and I thought, man, this is, this is true, this is good. And it just, he's, he's quoting a, a Methodist theologian named Gordon Wayfield. I don't know Gordon Wayfield, but he says, Gordon Wayfield observes that Puritan devotion, Puritan is people who understand the Reformation. Puritan devotion starts from a very different premise than the classical Roman Catholic pattern. And he's right. And he, just, he just nails it. He says, the Roman Catholic pattern is you purge yourself through the sacramental system, and as you 
purge yourself, you become more holy and more able to see. You purge yourself, and then you see your illumination, and then you have union. It's a lifelong endeavor. And, and really, at the end of your days, you don't know if you really have union or not. There's no assurance. That, that, that's, that's the teaching. He says, conversely, he says, the, the Puritan cycle is justification, sanctification, glorification. They're theological. Justification, you are declared righteous in the sight of God because what you could not do for yourself, a champion has done for you, and his name is Jesus. You are declared righteous. You are never more holy in God's sight positionally than you are the day you acknowledge the greatness of Jesus on the cross for your sins. That's a, so so you, you, it's not that you're traveling to something. You have this and you travel on with the sure knowledge that you belong to God. Joy. And he, he says this, he says, if the Catholic plods through the desert of self-renunciation in search of a beckoning Christ in its far side, the Puritan plods through the same desert in a quest of the Lord who was with, within him all along. I would just change the word. I would say instead of plod, I would say the Puritan skips. He skips. He sings. He rejoices. Because the God that I am going to is my God now. His name is Jesus. I've been declared righteous in his sight through the work of a champion who did for me what I could not do for myself. Justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ, the redemption on the cross. This week I was reading morning and evening. I read it every day. Just two sentences. Spurgeon said this in the bulletin. Take care that you never doubt your acceptance in Jesus. You can't be accepted without Christ. But when you, when you have received his merit, you can't be unaccepted. Notwithstanding all your doubts and fears and sins, Jehovah's gracious eye never looks upon you in anger. Though he sees sin in you, in yourself. Yet when he looks at you through Christ, he sees no sin. You are always accepted in Christ and are always blessed and dear to the Father's heart. Close quote. I read that and I put a big statement in my journal. I said, can this be true? And on the basis of the scripture, I say, blessed be the Lord, it is is true what i could not do for myself god has done for me do you see it dear brothers and sisters we are always trying to smuggle in self-performance to god's justification and we ruin it it's glorious Martin Luther, I loved, I loved his story. I love Martin Luther. I would love the vacation with Martin Luther. He was just a fun guy. After he came to faith, before that, he'd have been beating himself and fasting and wouldn't have eaten. And 
But, but Luther, Luther, is, Luther is just dealing with this, this concept of the righteousness of God and the just shall live by faith out of Romans 1.17. And he's just hammering at it. And he's in a tower. He's, 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 he's disguised himself so they won't kill him. This is after he's, you know, made a statement against some teaching of that day. And so Luther said, as, as I was hammering on the book of Romans... This phrase, the, rights, the righteousness of God, or the righteous shall live by faith, he said, I just assumed that the, the faith he was talking about was the faith that we earned or we worked toward. He said, but as I studied the Bible, I came to see that, that faith is the gift of God. It's the gift of God. It's something I just receive. It's nothing that I do. It's what was done for me by Christ. He says, and when I came to understand that, he said, I felt as if I had been reborn. I felt as if the gates of paradise had been flung open for me. It's not what I do. It's what he has done. He did for me what I could not possibly ever do for myself. This hymn, be before the throne of God above I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. Isaiah. Can't get it out. Lady Macbeth, out damn spot. Remember that? Try to get it off. My name is graven on the hands of Jesus. Not printed, graven. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Now, this is good theology. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, and it is there, it is there. Like the Puritan said, our tears of repentance need the blood of Jesus. And tells me of the guilt within, upward. I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's what Spurgeon is saying. To look on him and pardon me. Or, and can it be? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? I, 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 I want us to say that. How can it be? How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Can, can this really be true? Yes. The second thing I see here is in verse 27, after Paul goes through this, he talks about how the sins before the coming of Christ were passed over. That's why they were looking for the Lamb of God. He says, verse 27, where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. 
There's no boasting. Except in the cross. There's a story told in Luke about the life of Christ. I've read it for years and years, and I think I may have misunderstood it. Come this way. Luke 7, verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And when a woman who had lived a sinful life, all the commentators say, 90% sure this woman was a well-known prostitute. A sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's table. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him, they would lean on their left arm and eat. As she stood behind him at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair and kissed them and put perfume upon them. And you, know, you, you do a study on this passage, and first of all, you usually anointed the head with perfume, not the feet. So the fact that she was touching the feet was a sign of humiliation. Not only that, but, but she undid her hair. In those days, you never, a woman never loosened her hair, except in the presence of her husband. It was a sign, of, again, of, of humiliation and approachability. And, 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 and for years, I've read this passage and thought that she was weeping over her sin. And then I started reading, doing some research on the passage, and this is what most of the commentators say, that no, these were not tears of repentance, they were tears of gratitude. Think about it. That, that somewhere she had encountered Christ, heard him teach, and, and something happened in her heart. That, that this man, in some way that she didn't fully understand, takes care of my social marginalization. Takes care of my sin. They said, no, these, these are tears of gratitude. And then I thought, Lord, do I have tears of gratitude? Because what I could not do for myself, because I was in a full body cast, you did for me. The, the, the boasting. There's no boasting. So that, that's the gospel. Now, let me, let me ask you this, church. As, as Easter approaches and the, it's drawing close, um, as an act of worship and gratitude, I want you to pray about a hard thing that God would have you to do this week. Some, something you've, you've put up, maybe a broken relationship that you just haven't gone to that person and say, Let's get it right, or do you forgive me? Uh, maybe it's a coworker, family, remember a friend or a neighbor that doesn't know Christ, and you go to them and say, 
this is Easter. We go to church with me. Or will you please read this? Uh, let me just tell you, I was um, Thursday night. We went to, Sarah and I went to the Tyler Perry thing at uh, the North Charleston Coliseum. I guess 9,000 people were there, and it was incredible. Um, they had a play, and in the play, um, they quote a scripture. They didn't give a gospel, but they, they talked about life, and they said, you know, you have to realize all things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are called according to his purpose. It is, God isn't frustrated. There's a voice. God isn't frustrated by your situation. God wants to work in and through your situation. You can trust him. I mean, it was just part of the play. I mean, that, that, several things like that were said. And then when the play was over, Tyler Perry comes out and says, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready to leave. And so they pushed the stage back and they had a concert. And all the people that are in those plays can absolutely lay it out. I mean, what incredible giftedness. And then right in the middle of it, Tyler Perry. If you don't know him, I think you probably should. He says, you know, I just want to say this. I believe in Jesus. Whoa. He said, he's my Lord. He said, I say that in Hollywood and all my friends start quaking. They talk about, you know, Scientology and Kabbalism all they want. But if I say the name Jesus, they start quaking. He said, let me say it again. I believe in Jesus, I thought. I, I was very moved. And I thought, you know, who do I need to go to and say, you know, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe he rose from the dead. I just want you to know that. What hard thing can we do this week as a statement of gratitude? Not to earn favor, gratitude. What, 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 should, what is the Lord going to ask us to do as we prepare our hearts to walk through the wonder and the glory of of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I believe, I believe if you go to God today and get, get, get aside, he may have already spoken to you, say, Lord, what would you have me to do this week? I think he'll speak to you. I do. God is. He walks among us. So let's, let's do that just as an act of worship. Let's rejoice in the glory of the freely given righteousness that is ours through Christ, the imputation given to us. And as we go through the journey of life, may we skip, not plod, skip, because of who Jesus is. So good, man, he's so good. Now that is a fun sermon to preach. If you ever have a chance to preach, just go to Romans 3.21 and just lay it out. It doesn't get any better. It doesn't get any better. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thanks for this day. Thank you so much that uh, what we could not do for ourselves, you did. Lord, every person who's a believer came to understand they were in a full-body cast, they couldn't move. They couldn't respond. Another way of saying it, they were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and our sins, but you made us alive because you gave a substitute that did on the cross for us what we could never do for ourselves. You are the Lamb of God, Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. 
I pray that out of gratitude for who you are in our lives, that this week we would do something that's just going to be honoring to you, or potentially, but in heaven it is going to be honoring to you, and that you'll get the glory. So we commit our way to you, and we want to walk in the way of the cross. Lord, make, make this a week of, of joy and celebration and remembrance and glorify your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.